as vital as the mineral system is, as reflected in the HTMA data, it's a very delicate system. And if some people uh, that are much more reactive to any change in that system than many other people. And I remind people, the HDMA data will not hand it down on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments. Hello and welcome to the Mineral Minded Podcast. Are you interested in learning more about vitamins, minerals, heavy metal detoxification, and natural health? We explore a range of topics that are related to mineral balancing science and hair tissue mineral analysis, including in-depth interviews, news, and commentary about the wonderful world of natural medicine. I'm your host, John Bumpus. Today on the Mineral Minded Podcast, we have Dr. Rick Malter. He is a retired clinical psychologist from Chicago and is what I consider to be a pioneer in the field of HTMA and mineral balancing science. Dr. Rick Malter earned his PhD in clinical and educational psychology from the University of Illinois and is the founder of MalterInstitute.com. Rick is the author of two books, Strands of Health, A Guide to Understanding Hair Mineral Analysis, and Shrinking the Judge, Freeing the Inner Child, which are both available on Amazon. Dr. Rick Malter has also specialized in nutrition consultation for learning disabilities, ADD, and stress management. He uses nutritional data from a hair tissue mineral analysis to assess the mind-body connection and develops nutritional programs to help reduce the intensity of the person's stress response and therefore the psychological dominance of the judge. Hello, Dr. Malter. It um, is a real pleasure to have you here at the Mineral Minded Podcast. How have you been today? I'm uh, very fine, thank you. Even though it's very hot here in uh, Arizona, about 85 degrees of very dry heat. Yeah, so you're in a, a dry sauna then right now. You're cooking. <laughs> it can feel like a sauna. <laughs> yeah. A profound impact on people's minerals. Especially you know that? depleted in essential minerals like magnesium, sodium, and potassium. And they're Absolutely, uh, yeah. losing those in the dry heat of Arizona in the summer or spring. You know, the, the one thing that I, I think most people overlook is that in an hour of sweating, which is very common in a place like Arizona or Australia where I am, that you can sweat out the RDA of iodine. And most people are not getting enough iodine to begin with. Absolutely. So just by being in a hot climate, you actually increase your iodine requirements as well as those electrolyte minerals like you touched on. Absolutely. And that's one of the good things that hair uh, uh, mineral analysis or HGMA gives us um, a much deeper understanding and appreciation uh, for the major role that the minerals play in supporting our health. That's why I always <clears throat> like to go back to quoting uh, Dr. Henry Schroeder, who wrote his book, Minerals and Man, uh, probably about 50 years ago or so. And he simply observed, the minerals are the spark plugs of life. 
there's a foundation. And when Dr. Eck and Dr. Watts did their basic research on hair mineral analysis, beginning about 1975 through 1980, uh, during those five years, they pulled together the research of Dr. Hans Selig on what he eventually called the stress response. Uh, I pulled together uh, Dr. Carl Pfeiffer's work on copper toxicity in his book, Mental and Elemental Nutrients, that he published in 1975. Mm. And Dr. Uh, Pfeiffer was an MD and a PhD, a brilliant, brilliant scientist and medical doctor. He devoted the whole chapter to copper excess or copper toxicity. Because already in 1975, he was observing the damaging health effects of female contraceptives, uh, especially the birth control pill. Uh, and then, of course, the copper IUD um, creates contraception by directly poisoning the woman's cells and tissues with copper, excess copper. Yeah. It's too much copper. And I think the idea is that estrogen itself can increase the uptake of copper and vice versa. Taking excessive amounts of copper can also increase your estrogen in your body as well. So there's huge hormonal implications, which then can affect things like thyroid status, right? Because, you know, calcium gets raised by excess copper. Um, and over the years, as I've worked with uh, so many women who have uh, slow oxidizer or slow metabolic type mineral patterns. Uh, it turned out that a lot of them had all or most of these symptoms on this checklist that I put together simply by recording what kind of problems and symptoms they related to me that were obviously related to the buildup of copper toxicity that was reflected in their uh, HTMAs. And as a matter of fact, when I would interview a woman uh, and go over her copper toxic, slow oxidizer, slow metabolic type mineral pattern, she would look at this list of symptoms. And for her, it was like looking in a mirror. And she would wonder, how did you know that I had all these problems. Well, these are common copper toxic problems. And uh, even more importantly, that uh, kind of symptom list helps to really validate uh, hair tissue mineral analysis profiles. So can I, um, I'm just going to say that we, I, I will share a link to Dr. Rick Maltair's copper toxicity checklist link under this video so that people can see it because they can't really see it on the camera too well. And they can sit down and have a look at that themselves. Um, I, is I can send you a link to it. Sure. Yeah. You can post it directly. Cool. Yeah, we'll do that. And, you know, I use that checklist in my intake form. And I ask people just, I put that list in there and then I just let them choose the things that they feel were relevant to them. Um, I know you asked about in the past or what they're going through now. Uh, I'd personally just ask them if, if they're going through it now. 
But um, more often than not, it's like you see people with eight, 10, 12 of those things. And usually those people that have those checklists, um, like with that many, it's usually highly suspected of copper excess. Is that correct? That's correct. It would be very unusual if they have as many as eight, 10, 12 or more of the 31 items that I put on the checklist for them not to have a copper toxic uh, HDMA. Right. But we need to distinguish between what I call the manifest copper toxicity, which would show the slow oxidizer mineral pattern, but a high copper in the test. But we can have a latent copper toxic HDMA showing the high calcium, low potassium, usually a low sodium, uh, but the copper is not showing yet. Mm. That's what I call a latent copper toxicity. And that's the pattern that's one of the most common that we find, right? Because they're usually so burned out, they don't have enough adrenal activity to stimulate the production of cerebroplasm in the liver in order to bind enough copper to pull it into circulation for it to show in the HDMA. Absolutely. And a lot of people think that, hey, we'll just raise ceruloplasmin, right? That that's going to fix the whole problem of copper toxicity. But it's actually a fool's errand to do that because if you artificially just raise one lab biomarker, it doesn't mean you correct a systemic issue. Um, and it doesn't correct the adrenal insufficiency Absolutely. just by raising ceruloplasmin. <laughs> no. um, I- you have to put the copper toxic. Uh, syndrome into the broader context of uh, the broader mineral pattern that we uh, see uh, very easily and clearly in so many HDMAs. Right. Yeah. Um, And just before we keep moving forward, um, I'm just curious about your thoughts about they say that like people with a very low thyroid function, someone with high calcium to potassium ratio, that at least Dr. X said, if it's over 18, then it indicates a form of psychosis, right? And I think in the psychological field, people usually think the worst of that psychosis and not like that um, high functional psychosis where you don't see reality for what it is. And you just kind of have like this, you live in a fairyland kind of thing with ideologies and romantic ideas about life. Um, And I find that like when people have that elevated calcium to potassium, that very often they're not really aware of some of the symptoms that they're going through. So even when they go through that copper checklist, they might not choose everything that they're actually going through because they lack that awareness. You find that as well? Yeah, I think that's related to the buildup of the calcium shell, which winds up being a wall or a block to their access to uh, uh, nervous system and psychological functions and health functions. Yeah, I've always seen that they're very numb to a lot of emotions. They can be very cold people um, and that they uh, lack that awareness, like even emotional awareness of even their own actions or what people are doing to them. They've kind of dulled themselves to it, right? Desensitized. And also if they have a history of abuse, Mm either in the past, in childhood, 
or in uh, more recent or current relationships, uh, that calcium shell is a psychological defense, creating that kind of uh, blocked feelings and a kind of emotional numbness. And interestingly, as they uh, follow an HDMA supplement protocol that begins to detox some of that excess copper and to break up the calcium shell, all of a sudden, they're much more aware of what they're feeling and what's happening uh, to them internally and coming at them uh, externally. I, I see that in my practice daily. And, uh, you, you know, what I really also see is that even when that shell starts to come down and they start to become more of aware, sometimes they feel even more emotional, more anxious, more depressed, because now they are not numbed to the stuff that they've always been exposed to. Um, and I think that's really fascinating aspect of, you know, mineral balancing and hair tissue mineral analysis. Well, one of the reasons why they feel so uh, emotional is that with the copper dumping, as Dr. Reck refers to it, or a detox process, that further lowers potassium in ratio to sodium. So their sodium-potassium stress ratio uh, goes higher and their fight-or-flight responses become more intense. Mm. And that's what drives... Uh, all that emotionality uh, as the copper is detoxed and the calcium shell breaks up. So it's important to look at the broader context and not be surprised um, that stress uh, responses will intensify. Fight or flight. Fight is anger and rage. Flight is anxiety and panic attacks. And the high calcium potassium by itself lowering the energy of the uh, thyroid activity uh, may manifest in many people as depression with such mm -hmm. low energy. I think it's quite common that, de that depressed energy, depressed body, depressed mind, isn't it? It's kind no. of... When I was a uh, graduate student at the University of Chicago in the program uh, on human development psychology, uh, it was a very Freudian psychological uh, oriented program. Freud's id, ego, and superego. <clears throat> and so on the campus, uh, no one was noticing uh, that among all the people on campus at the University of Chicago, the head was usually attached to the body. But Freudian psychology focused primarily from the chin up. <laughs> so you're saying that there was the divide between the University of Chicago and started studying hair analysis that I realized, oh, the, the head is attached to the body. We better pay attention. <laughs> Interesting way, first got introduced to hair analysis since it was a, quote, medical, unquote, lab test. Uh, I thought I was moving from my profession of psychology uh, into the medical realm until I realized uh, that the HDMAs uh, reflected so much about the impact of stress on the vast majority of people.
doing HDMA. And that's fight or flight, that's uh, emotions and behavior, that's psychology. So that's the psychophysiology of stress. And when my uh, wife was studying uh, to get her biofeedback uh, certification back in the mid-1980s, uh, we flew down from Chicago uh, to a biofeedback conference in Albuquerque, New Mexico. You said biofeedback or biofield? Or is it, are you talking about biofeedback? Okay. And so as I was looking through the program, I noticed that there was a, um, a workshop on the physiology of stress uh, with special references to the neuroendocrine system. And Dr. Watts refers to a hair analysis as reflecting neuroendocrine functions. Excellent. And so yeah. I decided, hey, I'm going to take that workshop. It was an all-day workshop given by Mary Astorita, a PhD in chemistry and in uh, physiology, uh, who was teaching in the medical school of the uh, Indiana University Medical School. So I was fascinated by this because it laid the scientific foundation for much of what doctors Eck and Watts talked about in their hair analysis seminars, because it's all related to stress and neuroendocrine functions. And yeah, yeah. So I was very excited with all I learned that day from this uh, uh, brilliant physiologist. And most of the biofeedback people had very little interest in it. They were just taking it to get uh, the continuing education credits for the biofeedback certification. And then I talked to her afterwards and explained to her about HTMA, and uh, she was glad to hear there was a lab test that provided even more data about her specialty. And then when I mentioned the book to Dr. Watts, I think he still includes it as a reference uh, from the TEI lab. You know, um, I'm glad you brought up biofeedback because it was a big thing for me when I had a calcium shell to really spend time with myself and start to regulate my own nervous system. And I ended up, and I still have it to this day, right here, it's an M-Wave 2. And you basically plug it in and you can attach it to your ear and you can tell if you're in a sympathetic state or not. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you, when I was in a calcium shell, and when I was first getting in touch, you know, when my mind was starting to realize that, you know, my body wasn't um, coherent with it or on the same page <laughs> that um, I thought I wasn't stressed. Like I just thought, Oh, I'm relaxed. There's nothing going on, but I'll tell you the M wave or even my biofeedback device was like, no, you're in a, you're in a stressed state right now. Mm -hmm. And I, that was normal for me. I did not know that I was just always in this chronic stress state. And playing with one of those devices, I found really helpful with hair testing because you can you can use it to kind of tune in to where you're at and say, hey, I'm in that stress state. No wonder my potassium is always so low. Or I have this really high calcium to phosphorus ratio because I'm in parasympathetic dominance because I'm always stressed. Um, and you can kind of take control of it in that moment to moment. 
So uh-huh. I still refer to a hair test as a biofeedback test because it gives us a three month picture of our autonomic nervous system. Whereas one of these devices will give us right now, it's a lot like the blood and the hair testing combined, right? Right. And so you can uh, validate uh, uh, the two testing approaches, comparing Absolutely. one with the other. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so maybe we can touch on just. Um, some of the the history of HTMA. So I know that you were you've been doing HTMA for 42 years and you got into it for your own health reasons. Maybe you can touch on that and then we can go a little bit forward in that kind of area. Yeah. Well, I uh, had gotten my PhD in uh, education and school psychology from the University of Illinois in Urbana-Champaign. And that was in 1971. And so uh, uh, we already had our four uh, kids. Uh, our youngest was born in 1970. And uh, uh, going to work as a uh, psychologist in various schools and uh, hospitals and clinics turned out to be highly stressful. And by 1980, I was in terrible shape. My mind was in a total form. I was constantly exhausted. The only time I could boost energy was if I got out and exercised uh, playing tennis and uh, uh, doing some kind of uh, very active. Uh, uh, so stimulating yourself. It would give me a, a temporary boost and then I'd crash. Nothing was sustaining my energy. And I had a big red growth on my forehead here, about the size of a quarter okay. U.S. dollars. And uh, the dermatologist that I went to sent me to the University of Illinois Medical Center to consult with their chief of dermatology. And so he brought in his chief resident and had him take a chunk out of that, send it to pathology. Uh, they were expecting it would come back malignant. But they were disappointed. Didn't test malignant at the time. So they took another chunk. Same thing. Didn't come back. They did that five times. Finally, they gave up and said, well, I guess it's not malignant, except it looked very, very malignant. I was relieved that they didn't get a positive pathology response. But I was still exhausted. And about the same time, I had done a six-hour glucose tolerance test with my chiropractor. And the first blood draw with the fasting blood sugar was 45, which is, you know, is extremely low, just above being in a coma. So they gave me the glucose. My glucose levels over the next couple hours shot up to the 160s. And then over the remaining hours of the six-hour test, the glucose level came crashing down. The last blood draw was 35 at the end of six hours. And of course, wow. I had the headaches, the shakes, all of the awful uh, symptoms of reactive hypoglycemia. So I knew I had a problem. Yeah. But nobody could figure out, well, what's behind it? Fortunately, I was working with a... Uh, a couple of gentlemen who opened a uh, 
outpatient clinic in one of the Chicago suburbs near where I lived and practiced. And they asked me to be their uh, psychologist to do psych testing for them. And they were doing hair analysis with kids, kids who had a diagnosis of ADD or ADHD or learning disabilities. Okay. And the PhD educator and I became close friends and uh, he realized I was in terrible shape. So he said to me, Rick, you better get a hair analysis. He got the test. And as he's looking at it, he puts his thumb and forefingers close together like that and tells me, Rick, you're this close to a heart attack. How did he know that? Well, my magnesium was 0.9. And the ideal hair magnesium is around six. Hmm. So obviously it was very low. And yeah. my calcium was 17. So my CalMag ratio was up close to 19 to one. And the ideal ratio is uh, close to seven to one. So it was a double indicator of a severe magnesium deficiency. Mm. That had a, a devastating effect in regulating my uh, blood sugar and put me at all the other health risks of a severe magnesium deficiency. Uh, but he got my attention. I started on magnesium and other supplements, and um, I've been obsessed with magnesium ever since. You know, it's interesting that elevated calcium to magnesium ratio, um, at least according to the research trends, is it's correlated with blood sugar issues. But yeah. we don't, we can't tell if it's what type of blood sugar issue. To be honest, we can't tell if it's reactive hypoglycemia or anything. But um, a high, really high ratio or a very low ratio, both correlated with at least research trends for diabetes. Right. Um, so and diabetes runs in my family. Mm -hmm. Alcoholism runs in my family. So over the years, I found in working with uh, many of my uh, uh, psychology clients who had high CalMag ratios, uh, not only did they have blood sugar issues, but they were alcoholics or adult children of alcoholics. So I saw the CalMag ratio not only as the blood sugar ratio is described by Dr. Zek and Watts, but I... Uh, dubbed it the addiction and alcoholism ratio. Okay. That's interesting because I find that um, alcohol is a diuretic, so it causes you to eliminate electrolytes. And one of the ones that I see most commonly is really high sodium potassium ratio or really high sodium potassium levels, but it's usually a, an inversion or a low NAK ratio. So they're exhausted, but they're running on a stimulant and that simple sugar is like a means to get by. Um, so just so, by them. Yeah. by like that. They can't sustain it and they'll uh, try running on adrenaline like that for a while and uh, elevated blood sugar and then they reach a point where they totally crash and they're unable to continue and function anymore. Absolutely. And most people don't realize, um, <laughs> I know we were talking about blood sugar and now we're talking alcohol, but um, alcohol depletes copper and it's one of those 
unique situations where you can have someone that's very depleted in vitamin B1 and you can have someone that's also copper deficient um, because of just the alcohol is utilizing that copper and causing an increased elimination of it. So it's just something I find interesting. I don't know if you agree, Rick, but, but I, that's something I find. And it's interesting because I was at the pub the other day um, just because just we were getting pizza. It was Aaron's birthday, my wife's birthday. And, you know, I was like, oh, like where you get the our, the pizza that we were going to get, they had like wine and they had, you know, beer on tap and they have copper pipes leading to, for the alcohol. And I was just like thinking, well, this is interesting because if alcohol lowers copper and now they have an acidic beverage that's coming up through a copper pipe, it just led me down like this little, like, you know, do you get lost in your thoughts sometimes? <laughs> it's like, hmm, how would this relate to HDMA, you know? <laughs> Once we have the foundational set of concepts and principles for understanding and appreciating HDMAs, then we're constantly able to think in terms of mineral patterns, fast or slow. Copper toxicity, magnesium deficiency, and stress. Uh, It's just a natural way of thinking, but it's like having a unique language based on these essential concepts and principles. Mm. And because it's a unique language, people who are not versed in HDMA concepts and principles don't understand what we're talking about. It's like we are talking a foreign language to them. And this includes allopathic healthcare professionals, MDs, nurses, uh, osteopathic physicians, Chiropractors, naturopaths, uh, dietitians. You know, it's very frustrating to me sometimes when I, because uh, I have to work in an integrative practice a lot of the time with medical doctors or with another naturopath or whatever it is. Um, it just seems to be that clientele I get that goes to multiple different practitioners. And the the, the hardest thing for me is communicating the importance of the mineral patterns. So someone will say, you need to focus on the gut, gut health, and they want to throw in all this gut stuff. And I'm always like, okay, we need to do that. But what happens if we don't have enough zinc or if we don't have enough magnesium or if the person's always in a chronic sympathetic state, like all that's going to affect the gut health. Um, So people are often overlooking the influence of vitamins and minerals. And I always see that it's you know, they're quick to recommend herbs or something like that nature. And I've, I've come to the conclusion because when I was learning, I started my natural health journey in herbalism, herbology, right? And then I did advanced herbology, which is um, the pharmacokinetics of plant molecules, which is cool. But I never found someone deficient in dandelion. I never found someone deficient in nettle. But with hair testing, I find people deficient in magnesium, deficient in selenium, deficient in zinc, like, you know, all the time. So it's just this, this as you're saying, the, their views kind of um, guide their practice. And if they don't have these important principles and philosophies that we cover in HTMA science, then it changes their whole outcome of what they recommend. And then it also, in the end, affects the clients, right? Well, you know, uh, we've all been exposed to uh, uh, different approaches to healthcare. We're bombarded with advertising and uh, media messages 
related to allopathic uh, medicine, uh, diagnoses of different uh, diseases, and of course, prescription drugs. And many of the prescription drugs produce so-called side effects that are really magnesium deficiency uh, problems uh, exacerbated by the effects of the drugs, including death. Death is usually the last uh, side effect thing. It's a side effect I don't want to experience. <laughs> and that would make sense knowing uh, the work of Dr. Mildred Seeley, a brilliant MD who in uh, the 70s and 80s was studying the relationship between stress, magnesium deficiency, and heart attacks. And my friend and colleague who got my first hair analysis in 1980 already knew the research of Dr. Seeley. That's why he put his thumb and forefinger that close together to warn me of my risk for a heart attack with such an acute magnesium deficiency. So my thanks to Dr. Seeley yeah. for contributing to saving me and extending my life <laughs> and leading me on a path into HDMA in general and eventually becoming magnesium man. Because over <laughs> the years since then, I've been yeah. constantly talking about the importance of magnesium. And uh, in some of our networking uh, groups uh, around where we live in uh, Arizona now, um, near the Sedonian area, uh, I would constantly be talking about the importance of magnesium. <clears throat> So one time at a luncheon meeting, I get up to speak, and one of the ladies says, oh, you're this magnesium man. So when she said that, it resonated with me. So I went across town uh, after the meeting to a t-shirt shop and uh, ordered a magnesium man t-shirt, which they designed. Yeah. Great big shield against the blue uh, background of the shirt. And instead of a big S in the middle of the shield, they put in a, a big MG. <laughs> and, uh, That's fantastic. You know, uh, when uh, my, my wife's grandfather, um, he's 90, actually he's turning a hundred this year. He's turning in, I think in a few months. And he says when he was a kid, and his mother had a lot of health issues. And he said that she went and talked to a German physician and he said she had arthritis and he said to take Epsom salt. So put Epsom salt in a glass of water, put some lemon juice in it and drink that every day. And he said, so he's done that his whole life. He's turning a hundred, right? And he's to this day, if I want to go visit him, he's like, you know, having his Epsom salt and he goes, it keeps my bowels moving. And you know, he's like, and I don't have arthritis. <laughs> so he's like, I'm a hundred years old. I don't have the problems that these guys have in my, you know. Well, I just turned 85 mm -hmm. and there's no way I could have made it during these 42 years without that first hair analysis detecting such an acute magnesium deficiency and leading me to appreciate supplementation and eventually leading me to start to attend the uh, seminars that Dr. Eck and Wants uh, were giving in the early to mid 80s until they split up in 1984. 
Do you want to talk about that a little bit about how they had a conflict uh, at analytical research labs? And do you want to talk about what happened there? My understanding is Dr. Etka uh, had a, a background in uh, uh, health sciences. He read uh, voraciously in the health and uh, nutrition and scientific literature, and he became a vitamin and mineral salesman. And he'd call on uh, different practitioners, mostly chiropractors. And Dr. Watts was a young chiropractor starting out his practice in Phoenix. And so they got to know each other, uh, and they got curious about this newfangled test called hair analysis. So they began getting hair analysis data on Dr. Watson's patients. Mm. And of course, he had other uh, data from uh, other lab tests that they could correlate along with the uh, uh, physical exam that he did on his patients and knowing what their various conditions were. And they both knew a lot about the uh, research of Dr. Schroeder, uh, Dr. Seeling, uh, Dr. Pfeiffer, uh, copper toxicity, and uh, a good deal of research relating to the importance of minerals. And so they began to see certain clear-cut patterns mm. of the slow oxidizer in comparison with the fast oxidizer, and they saw the patterns were exactly the opposite. Right, so that would have been the classic um, oxidation rate based off of the calcium to potassium ratio and the yeah. sodium to magnesium one, right? Like the right. Yeah, historically, we need to keep in mind this was between 1975 and 1980 when they did the basic research and they yeah. established the foundation for this nutrition and mineral breakthrough using air analysis data. The new nutrition, I think that it was called. The new nutrition. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, and so they began to give seminars. And uh, the first time I heard them was in 1982 in the spring when they came up from Phoenix to Chicago to give a seminar on hair analysis at DePaul University in downtown Chicago. And even though I was still recovering from my magnesium deficiency uh, depletion. Uh, I had enough energy by 1982 uh, to drive down uh, from my suburban home uh, to attend this weekend seminar. And I was just amazed at what they presented. But my initial impression was, this is wonderful, this is gonna be the simple panacea because the way they presented the basic fat or slow metabolic type mm. uh, that I uh, have summarized in my book, The Strands of Health, um, the slow metabolic type was exactly the opposite mineral pattern of the fast. So it seemed quite simple and clear. All you got to do is rebalance the minerals and restore a person to health. And uh, uh, then subsequently, because I was uh, put on the mailing list, I started to get mailings from uh, the analytic research lab that Eck had founded in Phoenix. So then I began to fly down from Chicago to Phoenix 
to attend these weekend seminars. And they would draw at least 100 to 200 people per weekend attending wow. their seminars. They were really getting a lot of attention for their research and nutrition breakthroughs with their illnesses. And so I would attend uh, seminars two or three times a year. Okay, cool. And only one of those was recorded, as far as you know? Uh, I don't know how, how they did the recordings, but they okay. put the recordings together uh, at analytic research labs in this uh, uh, set of CD recordings, which with uh, technological developments, these are obsolete unless you still have a CD player around. <laughs> but, right. but the essence of those uh, early seminars is recorded on this. Yeah. And uh, by that time, Dr. Eck recognized me and uh, knew that I was a psychologist incorporating hair analysis into my psychological practice. And uh, so... Uh, after uh, Eck and Watts split up in 1984, and uh, uh, Dr. Eck invited Dr. Uh, Larry Wilson to fill in the spot uh, that Dr. Watts filled in. Uh, so at one of those seminars, I'm sitting in the audience, and Dr. Eck gives the introduction on Saturday morning, and after he talks for an hour, hour and a half, he could have talked for the whole morning. Once he would get started, he would go on, 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 on and on and on. So when he's ready to take a break and have Dr. Wilson come up, he notices I'm in the audience. And he said, Dr. Malter, uh, would you come up and say a few words about how you incorporate hair analysis into your psychological work, which I did. Hmm. And Dr. Wilson is sitting on the edge of his chair uh, anticipated getting up and speaking, and uh, your doctor that inserts me, uh, and has, uh, so maybe that's why he's not a big fan of my uh, doctor Wilson. So anyway, uh, uh, I'm recorded on one of these CDs. Yeah, I've listened to your, you've talked about clinical experience and stuff. It's a real, that whole CD is a historical document, and I don't think it's for sale anymore, unfortunately, the last I spoke with ARL. But, um, you know, so so just let's back up a minute. So when Dr. X and Dr. Watts broke up, you said in 1984 is when that seminar was recorded. So Wilson was there at that time. So Yeah, that was uh, right after X and Watts split up. And what Watts was noticing is that whenever uh, they would have a, uh, a client, usually a woman, go through a copper dump after being on a supplement protocol, what would happen uh, with the retest, the copper would go up and she's releasing and dumping excess copper from cells and tissues, and it's being excreted through the bowel the urine, and also being excreted through the hair mm -hmm. with that elevation of uh, yeah. the excreted mineral. 
But the same thing was happening with potassium. As copper went up, very often potassium would uh, elevate. Mm-hmm. And being elevated, it would lower the sodium-potassium ratio into what Dr. Eck described as a sodium-potassium inversion. And he related that to uh, the life and death ratio. Because mm. as a patient is dying and they go into uh, kidney failure, the sodium-potassium inversion occurs in a dying patient. Yeah. So he was always obsessed about the sodium-potassium ratio. So he would see that uh, copper dumping pattern but with the sodium-potassium ratio and elevated potassium. And so uh, uh, he would try everything possible to lower that high potassium and restore a better balance of uh, sodium and potassium, which made sense. Except that Dr. Watts was noticing when he would put these uh, individuals on potassium-lowering supplements, usually calcium and vitamin D, that they would get worse. Mm-hmm. They would see this over and over again. And then it dawned on him what was happening with the elevation of copper being detoxed and dumped and eliminated from the body. That also was triggering a loss of potassium from inside the cells, creating a temporary elevation of potassium. And of course, lowering the NA decay ratio into a severe sodium potassium inversion. And Dr. Watts realized, hey, this is a potassium loss. And if you keep lowering potassium even more, you make the individual worse. So that's during you just be clear for everyone that's listening. You're talking about when someone is dumping copper and then the copper jumps up high to do, and then the potassium follows it. You're talking about that creating a pseudo inversion. Okay. Yeah. But that then means uh, that there's a loss of potassium, which is what Dr. Watts figured out. And copper toxicity and copper dumping associated with a sodium-potassium inversion with Dr. X-Baby, so to speak. That, that was his specialty. Yeah. He could not tolerate a challenge to his thoughts about the need to lower that potassium that is elevated temporarily with the copper dumping. And that was a super fast oxidation. Typically, very low calcium and magnesium, and very high sodium and potassium. And that meant that he was uh, a very fast oxidizer, an extreme type A personality, volatile, hey. psychologically having a short fuse, very low frustration tolerance. And it didn't take much to trigger him, and he could just blow up. Mm-hmm. Like I heard some of the uh, uh, girls who worked in the ARL office say when he was around the office, 
it was like walking on eggshells. Because as brilliant as he was, with that fast oxidizer profile and short fuse, he could blow up in an instant. And that's what happened uh, one day when Watts again challenged him about uh, what he was doing with sodium potassium inversions in individuals' competence. And so in a fit of rage, he just uh, told Dr. Watts, get out of here, and it's true. Do you think that's what led to the birth of that product ZMC? Because I know Dr. Um, Eck created Limcumin and he loved using Limcumin, yeah, which he is loved using Limcumin, But he also created what he called Molly Q. Yeah. OLY was for molybdenum and CU was, of course, copper. And molybdenum yeah. is known to be a, uh, an antagonist to copper. So that was another favorite of his. Uh, Limcomin for sodium potassium reversions. Molecule for copper toxicity. Yeah. So, and Molecule, just, just for the listeners, is that that's a molybdenum black radish product that is no longer available either because. Yeah, that is no longer Since he passed away about 25 years ago, his kids didn't know how to. Uh, support and uh, promote that. Also, another favorite of Dr. Max was a product called Spartan MK. M for magnesium, K for potassium. That was a favorite of Dr. X because magnesium and potassium are so vital for intracellular function, including magnesium combining with ATP for energy. And they they also discontinued that because after it uh, died, uh, I uh, was one of the very, very few practitioners using Spartan MK with my clients. That one you can still, you can't buy that product Spartan MK, but you can get, you know, like um, potassium magnesium aspartate that's still available uh, from different companies. It's basically right? the same product, but yeah. it's the same principle of providing that extra intracellular infusion of magnesium and potassium, which are so commonly deficient and have such a devastating impact on people's energy. Would you think that um, using those aspartate forms of potassium magnesium would be helpful for that, that copper dump that leads to a potassium loss? Because potassium aspartate is really good at raising intracellular potassium. Do you think it would kind of plug the leak or do you uh, use it in that I way? Or? That's why Dr. Eck uh, really especially like that kind of a product. But for a pseudo-NAK like what Watts identified, do you think it would still be appropriate to use? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. And it would begin to give some hope to uh, a severely copper toxic uh, adrenal burnout person with a very slow thyroid and highly diminished energy. Mm. That would begin to give a quick energy boost, but without throwing them into a more severe copper dump. 
Yeah. I, I can't, if you have too much of that product, which I have at one point, it can cause some anxiety because it's really stimulating. And usually those slow um, thyroid people don't really, just because you give them energy doesn't mean they know what to do with it because no. they live their life in a, a depressed energetic state. So um, I know firsthand it can cause a racing heart and you feel like your mind's going a mile a minute and it can even feel like copper dumping. And I'm sure it can even stimulate it by increasing metabolic functions. Right. And so over the years, we've learned to be much more cautious because mm -hmm. we've learned that as vital as the mineral system is, as reflected in the HDMA data, it's a very delicate system. And in some people, uh, they're much more reactive to any change in that system than many other people. And so we have to recognize that and start people more slowly, see how they initially respond and uh, indicate to them that uh, when they're using HDMA data and going on HDMA protocols, they need to really uh, have a heightened awareness of their own responses mm -hmm. and they need to be flexible And I remind people, the HTMA data will not hand it down on Mount Sinai with the Ten Commandments installed. <laughs> yeah, it, it was not handed down in stone. And, uh, and the dynamic nature of the mineral system means that people uh, uh, need help in understanding uh, Changes can occur very quickly when they're given the right supplements guided by their own HDMA data. And to be flexible, on some days they may need more of a, a particular supplement protocol. On other days, they may need to cut back. And that's fine. That's going to work best. That's great. You pointed that out because I think people overlook the fact that in HTMA, if it's a three month picture or four month, depending how long the sample was, that it's an average of that time period. So you can have, um, you might in the bigger picture have a low NAK ratio. But that doesn't mean every day you have a low NAK ratio. That just means on average over that you have that ratio, right? And so sometimes you might tolerate a product and the next day you might not in the same way. But that doesn't mean that next week you will, you know, you'll have that same response. And I know it's people are quick to say, oh, I can't take this product or, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm intolerant to this. And it's like, once you start shifting things, you, you might be able to, you know, like you need to be open to change and then be aware that your body can change as well. And that means how you respond to things can change. So just because someone says, Oh, vitamin C helped me when I was younger with this problem, whatever it is, doesn't mean when they get that problem 20 years down the road, that it's still going to help them. Right. <laughs> well, so. I can give an example from my own experience. I'm a fast oxidizer. And um, fast oxidizers will tend to have very low copics and be prone to copper deficiency, what Dr. Watts calls an absolute deficiency of copper. And, uh, and so I would uh, start taking uh, a copper supplement. 
And sometimes even a two milligram copper supplement at some point in time, uh, inmate could trigger a severe nauseous reaction almost instantaneously. Mm -hmm. Because it would drive my potassium down. I always tended to run a high sodium and high sodium potassium. And a high sodium potassium, besides being an index of stress, also is related to nausea. So as soon as I would get that copper triggered nauseous reaction, right away I would grab a zinc, swallow a zinc with water, and bingo, the nausea would evaporate almost instantaneously. Yeah. It's amazing how quickly you can undo something like that because <clears throat> I've done, I've shared in the past about me taking 35 milligrams of copper, which I know people poo poo on. And I know your wife um, also had a comment at me about it before. Um, but you know, I I'm open to playing. I'm open to trying new things. And, you know, for me, when I took, I took six milligrams and I took it six times a day as 36 milligrams or something. And um, when I did that, I definitely got nauseous <laughs> and it was the exact same thing that I did. I was like, well, if I took this much, I took two zincs and it went away. And then I was like, okay, well, I'll just take more copper. And then, and cause, um, there's a, there's a perspective Dr. Eck used to say is that, um, if you're a fast oxidizer, you're deficient in copper, but you have an increased requirement for zinc as well. And that he would say that, um, it does the opposite effect. Like it does in a, in a um slow oxidizer he would say if you take zinc it actually raises calcium right and that might be why he was trying to use with with that pseudo nak he probably kept using more zinc as well which probably furthered the copper dump and then furthered the loss of potassium <laughs> but <laughs> i don't know what, what his perspective was <clears throat> but um you know, that zinc copper blends as well can be really helpful. And I, I would use that as an antidote as well. Or even, um, if I was already taking a lot of zinc, I might look at taking manganese or something or more vitamin B6 or something to counteract it as well. Mm -hmm. um, so do you think that ZMC from trace elements is kind of like a good alternative to Limcumin for the, the copper toxic individual. Do you think that's why it was made? It's zinc, manganese, vitamin C. Well, Dr. Watts knew that zinc, manganese, and vitamin C would help uh, move uh, more copper uh, with fewer uh, copper dumping symptoms and to support uh, the copper dumping. So do you think that would be a, for, uh, a, a good product to use for that pseudo NAK during that copper dump? I use a lot of it because, uh, okay. as you know, there's so many of these copper toxic individuals out there. Yeah, but, no, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> uh, but uh, we don't use it when there's the latent hidden copper toxicity. We wait until we see the elevated copper showing either in the initial test or on a retest before we introduce the ZMC. Okay. So we don't want to uh, trigger a copper dump when there's uh, a hidden copper or latent copper until we build up uh, uh, the uh, elimination pathways. Okay. Liver detox is uh, absolutely essential for copper toxic people. 
because of the copper overload in their liver. Do you have any favorites for that? Oh, my wife has been a uh, uh, Shackley uh, uh, distributor of their supplement products. Which company is that? Shackley, okay. which is a um, an American company started by Dr. Shackley. This goes back okay. to probably 60 or 70 years, right after World War II. He was a chiropractor, and he developed his own uh, supplement product line and developed uh, a whole supplement business and organization uh, with uh, multi-level marketing. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people became distributors. And my wife has been a distributor. So we use some of their products. Okay. And the liver detox uh, has primarily milk thistle and other uh, plants and herbs in there. And it's okay. a very a good quality liver detox, but there's plenty of other liver detoxes. Okay. Yeah, so, I'm just curious what you use because we yeah. all have our favorites and yeah. even though there's other products, right? Um, and uh, <clears throat> so when I work with people, if they have other choices uh, to help detox the liver, that's fine. Okay. What are your thoughts on when you have someone with a very low copper, like 0.5 or something? And what are your thoughts? Like, are you thinking hidden copper or latent copper? Are you thinking uh, well, copper deficiency? If they're a slow oxidizer, and especially if they have a very high calcium potassium ratio, that probably means that. Uh, they're in an adrenal burnout. They can't even mobilize uh, a little bit of copper to show higher in the hair analysis. Mm -hmm. So they're in serious trouble. What about and one of the illustrations Sorry. I give when we talk about copper toxicity, <clears throat> and a lot of people have trouble grasping this concept. How can a copper toxic person be copper deficient uh, in terms of copper metabolism. Well, I describe it as being in the middle of the ocean with a vast amount of salty seawater around. You have all of this water, but you can't safely drink it. So the copper toxicity would be like being on a copper sea, but the copper is not in a form that's healthy. Yeah. If I use the example often of being at like a farmer's market and, you know, like usually they usually take cash, you know, and it doesn't matter how much money you have in your bank account, you don't have available funds to buy <laughs> whatever you want. So you could have a whole bunch of it but also not have enough of it at the same time. So it's similar concept. That I Sorry. Can I add that to my repertoire? Of course. You know, I'd learned that one only because that happened to me at the market. And I was <laughs> like, this is a lot like copper X. So, <laughs> um, so what about your other thought on like, you talked about like that low thyroid function with the low copper. What about a high NAK ratio? Like really high would say like 20 or something or even higher um, copper typically 
at least my learning is copper can raise sodium. So usually you don't want to use it for an elevated sodium potassium ratio. And if they had low calcium magnesium, at least at ARL, we'd call them mixed oxidizers. Um, so what would, you know, you know, because they have a high sodium potassium and a very low copper and they would be mixed fast mixed in that perspective. Um, would you still use copper? No, to me, it's, it's a conundrum for me. So I'm trying, yeah, I'm just seeing what you think. They have a, a very high NA to K ratio mm -hmm. with a very low potassium yeah. in that ratio, knowing that copper will lower potassium and elevate that ratio. And already, if they have a high NA to K stress ratio, we know that stress triggers a loss of magnesium from inside mm -hmm. itself. So if you give copper and drop potassium, increasing the NA to K stress ratio, intensifying the person's stress response, look out for magnesium loss. Yeah. I just thought I'd ask you, because I, I mean, I thought about it. I'm like, a lot low of a copper means they're deficient. And I'm like, usually their zinc's going to be high, which means they have a high zinc to copper ratio. So they have a relative deficiency. They have a low level, which could be perceived as an absolute deficiency, but then the HTMA pattern doesn't fit it. So I just thought I'd ask you, <laughs> you know, what your thoughts you are. You an extremely low copper. Uh, back in the 1980s at their seminars, Ekin Watts would note that once the copper drops below one mm -hmm. in the HDMA, the person's risk for developing a malignancy goes up. Mm -hmm. And so they knew there was a connection between a critically low copper, and this could be even a bio-unavailable copper. Mm -hmm. Uh, the risk for malignancies would go up. And Dr. Watts told me that sometimes he'd see that chronically low, uh, extremely low copper level. And sure enough, in six months or a year, the person was experiencing a malignancy. Mm. But uh, since cancer uh, is such a super sensitive health issue, uh, after a while, they seem to uh, become more cautious about talking about uh, that cancer indicator uh, in HDMAs. And interestingly, uh, back in the mid-1980s, even after uh, Epin Watts split up in 1984, there was still a great deal of interest in the seminar. And then, lo and behold, in August of 1985, the Journal of the American Medical Association ran an article on HDMX in August 1985. And it was written by Dr. Stephen Barrett, who has set himself up as the quackbuster-in-chief. And uh, that article... Uh, almost put the hair analysis uh, labs out of business because it was published in JAMA and it was accompanied by a massive uh, press release and media campaign. One of my clients called me 
uh, after reading an article about it in uh, our local newspaper and asked me if I had seen it and what I thought of it. So I went over to our local uh, hospital medical library and read the article. And in the title of the article it referred to HDMA as a scam. And then as I read the article, it was based on shoulder length hair samples from two 17 year old girls. Someone told me one of the girls was uh, uh, Barrett's daughter, and I guess the other was a girlfriend. So I guess he offered to give them a haircut, uh, cutting samples uh, down to the shoulder, so he could chop those long strands into one inch samples, mix them all together, and assume they were identical. Based There's on a lot wrong with that, though, before, because hair changes as it grows. It's not uniform. No. Um. <laughs> I understand that he washed all the samples with tap water from his kitchen sink. And yeah. Who knows what was in the tap water? So he sends them off to 13 different labs. They come back uh, with different readings. But when you look at the data in that article, Lo and behold, calcium is high in both girls. Uh, sodium is either low or uh, at the uh, average level, and potassium tended to be low. So they're slow oxidizers, basically. Yeah, and what do you think uh, the copper level was? To be honest, Rick, but I, I haven't I haven't seen the actual data because I don't have access to the paper. But I imagine he didn't even let it run thirty seconds to get the copper out of the pipe, so he probably was contaminated sample, so it was probably high. <laughs> Both girls had slow oxidizer patterns with high coppers, hmm. which is not unexpected uh, with two seventeen-year-old girls uh, who may have already become. Uh, estrogen dominant and obviously copper toxic. Yeah. I would love to see a follow-up and see how those girls are doing 35 years later. As, as <sighs> yeah, you know, that article is still being published of course in re reference to this day of accuracy. Um, They're not going to retract that. No, but I mean, even the people like in current new research that comes out published with hair testing, they still cite it, but they've never actually read the paper and they don't know like they, if they, know about, they don't know anything about hair analysis. Yeah. They couldn't read that article critically anyway. Mm. But it was published in JAMA. It makes for a, an impressive citation. <laughs> and then they did a similar kind of uh, attack on HTMA in January of 2001. There were four people from the California State Public Health Department. And one of the uh, authors of that 2001 study, I guess, volunteered her hair. So uh, she provided the hair. Uh, they said they were replicating Barrett's study, coming to the same conclusion that hair analysis is not accurate. And they also put out press releases and a big media campaign, mm -hmm. gaslighting hair analysis. And that almost put the nail in the coffin of uh, hair analysis. Later. But there was, there was a good thing out of that study, wasn't there? 
There was a good, good information. If you understood the data in that study, it was that there was two labs that had very good accuracy. One of them was in a licensed laboratory. I don't even know why it counted. And the, the other one was off because they washed the sample. So, um, well, I, I had access to the article and mm -hmm. I was able to figure out which labs were probably TEI and ARL. And so I wrote a rebuttal article that uh, Dr. Abram Hoffer published in the Journal of Orthomolecular Medicine. Mm -hmm. And I showed a comparison of the data from the two labs, and the data are virtually identical. Now, what they did in that study, instead of sticking to the raw data and uh, making comparisons of the actual numbers, like happen. I did in my article. What they did is they uh, looked at the lab reports, interpreting the numbers as being either uh, above or below average or average. Well, as soon as you get into uh, talking about lab numbers as above, below, uh, or average, you're already into interpreting the data and not reporting raw data. Yeah, it's different a reference ranges, right? If you run a correlation between the two sets of data from TEI and uh, uh, ARL, the correlation is well above 0.9 in terms of a reliability correlation. That means that the data are virtually identical. Very close, yeah. Which is what you want is to have a very, very highly accurate report. Now, what they did, for example, uh, in that uh, lady's data, and it was based on one 40-year-old woman, uh, her phosphorus level was 12. And one of the labs considered a 12 phosphorus as being within the average range. The other lab described the phosphorus of 12 is below the ideal phosphorus of 16. So what they did is they captured the data uh, comparing uh, a phosphorus in the average range and a phosphorus below, even though the numbers were identical. <laughs> and they published that kind of junk science. Yeah. And that's the stuff that gets published, and that's the stuff that medical doctors read and think is accurate because they believe the conclusions and stuff, and they don't yeah. have a critical mind. You know? yeah. So fortunately, Dr. Hoffer was willing to publish my rebuttal article. Yeah, no, that's uh, unfortunate for hair testing, but really... Um, you know, it is very accurate and it's still used to this day for toxic metals. I know. Yeah. To the sample though, not to averages across different labs, because that's the same problem in blood tests is one lab will say the average thiamine level is something between something. Another one will say, Oh no, that it needs no. to be smaller or bigger than that. And then there's a, like, it's not exclusive to HTMA, that kind of. Um, and with HTMA data, 
you have to have extremely narrow ranges for interpreting the, the test results. If you try to expand and use wide ranges, plus or minus two standard deviations in statistical terminology, then you have you know, idiotic conclusions uh, that extremely low levels of the mineral or extremely high levels are falling in the average range. You lose all sense of the value of an HDMA when you do that. Do you think um, ARLs are still reasonable, how tight no, they sure. are? Because yeah. they were established in a time where it was easier to get truly healthy individuals. Mm -hmm. And given the devastating effects of the female contraceptives, starting around 1960. Yeah. And as they marketed the female contraceptives, the birth control pill, and then the copper IUDs, the estrogen raised copper levels, and we know as copper goes up, potassium goes down, the Na to K ratio goes up, magnesium goes down, and calcium goes up. And so it started a cascade of changes in the underlying mineral dynamics of millions of teenage girls and young women. Mm. And then when they got pregnant, after they became so copper toxic, their excess copper and or mercury and other toxic metals gets transferred into the fetus. And in each new generation, more and more uh, babies are born uh, with excess copper. You know, personally, I don't know if you agree, Rick, but I think that there's a blessing within the curse of uh, a baby born with high copper or even someone with high copper. And to me, that blessing is that if you compare the toxicity of mercury and copper, copper is a lot more tolerable. Oh, right? So in copper can block mercury's metabolism in the body. So I think even nature's designed to protect the fetus from toxic metal like mercury and increasing copper, right. knowing that copper is more, not it's not easy to get out, but it's less severe as far as symptomatology, especially in a younger individual with higher adrenal gland activity, typically. Um, so they're more likely to be able to metabolize that copper being fast oxidizers. And then it's every, you know, nature's plan works. Um, so I, th I think there's a blessing and a curse with that whole thing. So I don't always just like say, Oh, everyone's copper toxic when they're born, because if it's a healthy baby and they're, they are developed, nourished, you know, adequately. I don't see it as a problem, but to the child that then ends up on, you know, maybe bottled milk and, or they don't eat properly. And then I think it can get very severe quickly, <laughs> um, you know, and that might be why you have young children with a lot of issues these days. Yeah. And we have to come back to biochemical individuality. Mm. We can talk about copper toxicity as a general concept category, but with tremendous variation in terms of the amount of copper that is built up in different individuals, where that copper is deposited, whether it's deposited primarily in the liver or in the brain or other organs and tissues.
And so even though we can uh, talk in general terms about copper toxicity, we have to recognize there's a tremendous variability in regard to uh, the nature of the copper toxicity buildup in different individuals and the impact on health. And that's just one nutrient, right? Copper. You got to consider that you having, I might have higher B1 requirements than you, not because I'm deficient, but just because my body uses it a lot more differently or needs more to get the same job done, whether genetically, environmentally, uh, my mental processes are different than yours. So all of that can influence the amount of nutrients you require. And that, that's like, like Dr. Derek Lonsdale, who's known for his research in thiamine used to say like, you can have people that need up to like 1800 milligrams of thiamine, vitamin B1. And you can have people that improve drastically on 200, 300, you know, like, and, but that variation is very severe on how much you actually need. And I know Hoffer as well used to talk about that with niacin. And he would say, some people can get by with a couple hundred milligrams. Other people need 3000, 6,000, 9,000 to keep their psychiatric symptoms at bay. You know, and that's just that individual <laughs> approach. <laughs> well, and uh, uh, we have to understand and appreciate uh, the value of biochemical individuality. Mm. I think that is um, the future of um, medicine. And I think it's the future of natural medicine as well. Um, I don't think genetics is the right way to go about it personally, Not but I all. think. I think, I, think nutrition is. <laughs> I think genetics has been a rabbit hole that's become a huge distraction. Yeah. I, I mean, it has some good, good things like Wilson's disease. We learned a lot about copper metabolism. Yeah. But genetics itself hasn't solved one disease. And really, modern medicine hasn't really corrected one disease since like World War II or World War I, I'm pretty sure. Yeah. I think the antibiotic was the only thing that they ever actually have something that's cured something other than that they've they've they're very unsuccessful <laughs> to well, be honest. john d rockefeller recognized at the beginning of the last century that he could uh, expand his uh, petroleum product market by uh, having uh, medical labs create drugs and pharmaceutical companies create drugs from so, you know, I mean, th there was a whole attack on natural medicine since, um, you know, <laughs> it's been going on for a long time yeah. and the, it's no different these days. If not, you know, I think sometimes now they let some of us speak on certain topics because they see it as it's so out there that it, it you know, you think people, they might think others are wacko just for talking about it, right? Like nutrient therapy, correcting issues or stuff. They, they allow that, you know, but I think it's also because a lot of drug companies own nutrient companies. So I think <laughs> they don't care if we all make the switch to nutrition, um, as long as they're the one that's getting their products funded. Um, but where do you see hair testing going in the future, Rick? Like uh, we know the past and we've been attacked and we know that right now there's not so much collaboration going on and stuff. So where do you see it going and where would you like to see it go? Well, um, uh, we have to recognize that operating a hair analysis lab uh, involves 
tremendous uh, investment in terms of the equipment needed, hiring uh, the expert personnel to run the equipment. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and even though as practitioners, uh, we're dealing with a lot of people interested in hair analysis, but the healthcare marketplace for a hair analysis is very, very tiny. And so the lab seemed to uh, be more concerned about keeping or expanding their share of this very limited hair analysis marketplace. Mm. And they have not uh, seemed to be willing uh, to sponsor professional conferences, to share research, and to support research and uh, look at uh, clinical cases on a large scale. Mm. So that, that's one of the factors. And uh, the fact that uh, hair analysis has been maliciously attacked uh, over the past 35 years by JAMA and obviously the AMA and Big Pharma and the media. Um, I would not count on eventually getting hair analysis recognized by the media okay. or by medical schools. I think uh, uh, I would like to see uh, uh, hair analysis information uh, made more broadly available to large numbers of the members of the public mm -hmm. to educate. And, and we have the, uh, the tools to help support that kind of uh, mineral and health aid uh, education. Yeah. yeah. That's one yeah. of our goals with this podcast is bringing yeah. forth the, the mineral minded practitioners, the mineral minded people, they don't have to be practitioners, the researchers, the whatever, but we can talk about that and bring up the conversation of it and then get other people's opinions. So yeah. that's one thing we're trying to do with this podcast, at least. Yeah. And that was evident with uh, the podcast with Dr. Sullivan and uh, with Rick Fisher. Mm -hmm. They presented some very, very valuable information and your discussions with them were outstanding. And those, uh, those are a part of uh, mineral analysis education. Mm -hmm. And hopefully uh, with the internet and internet searches, more and more young people uh, will uh, become curious about uh, health in general, nutrition uh, and minerals and uh, hair analysis. Yeah. And you don't have to go to medical school or nursing school or uh, a dietitian program to learn the basics of uh, the concepts and principles, mm. which are based on solid scientific research and clinical practice to yeah. learn and appreciate hair analysis. In fact, that's one of the paradoxes. It's so simple, but it's so intricate and difficult. Is that the paradox? Yeah. You summed it up perfectly. Simple, okay. but intricate and complex. Mm -hmm. But that's the nature of the mind-body system. 
and the mineral dynamics. Right. Um, yeah. Basically, stress and cellular energy production. Absolutely. So you think that there's still a chance for hair testing, at least as far as naturopaths, natural medicine, chiropractors, um, that kind of field? Or you think that um, it should be more set up for like mineral balancing as being its own individual modality? And yeah, uh, I am not very encouraged by uh, the response that I've had from naturopaths and even some chiropractors. For some reason, uh, they just don't see the uh, unique value of uh, looking at the mineral system as a whole, understanding its dynamics, and studying it uh, in an in-depth manner to really learn the basics and see how it applies. I think it's sometimes the more you know, the more easy it is to ignore other things that don't fit your belief system. So <laughs> I think it's something like that. Um, so you think that there's a, a, a chance of mineral balancing becoming its own natural medicine modality at some point? Um, well, what, what I think is going to happen is that um, big pharma and organized medicine are going to keep lobbying state legislatures and Congress in the U.S. Uh, to further attack and limit HGMA. Okay. We already have seen uh, that New York makes it virtually impossible to legally even cut a hair sample, let alone cut it and send it into a lab. And California just recently passed a law that only a medically trained practitioner can order a hair analysis. Even yeah. though uh, virtually all MDs know very little, if anything, about hair analysis. Haven't been trained in it. So yeah. if anything, it's irresponsible. It's like saying, you know, only farmers can do taxes or something. It's like, yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't know it. They might have a little bit of expense, like probably but not. These are the kind of political and legal attempts uh, to attack and to limit their analysis. Yeah. And that's yeah. why I think it's got to go through the grassroots. Yeah, it's got to be grassroots, and I think it needs to be backed with the science as well. And as science grows, and I don't, I mean, I, I read research papers, but I'm not like a scientist. Oh, I, and like a proper scientist using scientific method, I think is important, but um, science ism as a religion and saying, oh, if it's not published in the paper, then it's not true or something like, I don't believe in that. What people think. don't realize is how much uh, science has become politicized. Yeah. And religious. It's become no. a religion too. No. And academia uh, is highly political. Mm. And this has been known for uh, generations. Yeah. All right. Well, 
Um, it was nice having you on, Rick. It's a real pleasure to have someone with so much experience in the field, 42 years. Holy moly. Um, I hope I have that much experience one day. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you have a great foundation. You've built up uh, a lot of excellent experience. And uh, it's just a matter of uh, keep, keeping our thinking caps on. My third grade teacher in elementary school talked about have your thinking cap on when you're learning. Mm -hmm. And as long as we have our thinking caps on and we're thinking and analyzing and um, applying what we know, fine-tuning it, mm -hmm. uh, we'll advance our own expertise and yeah. uh, be able to share that with others. And that's true development as well, really. Like when you are growing as a human and growing and maybe learning new things or coming at it in different ways. Um, I had one of these, um, I, I was gardening and I was thinking about growing up in a, in a time when people say, you know, the good old days and they're like, the good old days when I, when I was young was like the smell of cigarettes, you know, it's like in the restaurant everywhere. everyone smoked. No. So it was like the good old days. But then I thought back and I'm like, we, one of the things I learned and it seems simple, but it's look both ways before you cross the street. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like, before you make like a definitive stance, look at both sides of the picture right. to see what's going on. But I was like, look both ways before you cross the street. It's just one of those simple things like put your thinking cap on. And it's like, well, and I think huge implications <laughs> if you think about it outside of its context normally, you know? Yeah, and I think with uh, HDMA, uh, HDMA science and principles and con concepts can hold their own against any other healthcare approach. Hmm. I really think that's true too. But there's no interest in making comparisons between. Uh, what happens with people doing HDMA and following HDMA protocols versus other nutritional approaches and certainly against allopathic drugs and medications. There's no interest in that. That would be true science. But the healthcare marketplace is such a lucrative marketplace there isn't a strong incentive to maximize health science and understanding and advancement. I believe if we can truly nourish people and we can truly incorporate hair testing and mineral balancing science, then we can reach a new, new normal as far as like human health. I think, you know, like, kids growing up these days that think it's normal to have brain fog all the time and that they can't no. concentrate and all that. And they, that's normal. Right. And it's normalized by society, but I'll tell you, as soon as I started nourishing my body and getting some of these metals out and balancing my hair test, um, my intelligence went right up. I found so much easier to retain information, to learn new things, think outside of the box. And you know, like it was just like a light bulb turned on, <laughs> you know, uh, it reminds me of one of these, I was worked with this, um, more of this simpleton kind of guy who's like lived out in the bush and we were working on his electrolytes 
And he goes, you know, ever since I got my electric lights on, he's like, I'm so much brighter, you know? <laughs> and I, I, sometimes I make the mistake when I say electrolytes now, because I always think back to him. I was like, you know, one, now I got my electric lights. You know, I'm great. Um, <laughs> you know, one, one other aspect about hair analysis. Uh, I don't know if you had the target stores in Canada or you have those in Australia. We got them in Australia. Definitely. Okay. So you know the target uh, emblem is a target with a bullseye in the minute in the middle. So one time when I was driving up to a target store, I'm looking at their logo with the target. And it dawned on me when it comes to nutrition and health, HTMA hits the bullseye of the target. Whereas most of the other approaches, if they hit the target, they hit the outer rings of the target, which means that they often go round and round in circles before getting to the underlying essence. Exactly. It's like um, we talk about shotgun supplementing, where you just kind of take everything, you know, whatever's on sale, supplement roulette, you know, spin the wheel and see what we land on. What's on sale this week? Oh, vitamin D, I guess I'm taking that. Um, that's what a lot of people do. Yeah. Hair testing is just like, no, what do we need? What should we focus on? Yeah. And you know, that's really what we, it hits the target. Like you're saying, it just hits the bullseye. Um, it's precision versus um, more the merrier. And I often use the example of your body is intelligent. It's brilliant. It's a wonderful phenomenon. You know, the phenomena of man is you know amazing, but throwing everything at it isn't better because it's the equivalent of everyone on your street calling 911 at the same time and saying, we have a fire, right? There's not enough resources from the local emergency thing to go to everyone's house at the same time. So you need to focus on what's priority. And even though you might know of other things that are issues, it might not necessarily be the thing to do right away. And then we always got to work with that life force of the body where regardless of what we think is the best thing to do, like as a practitioner, or as a client or, you know, person that's trying to heal, we might have our opinion what the best thing to do is, but then our life force might just say, yeah, you know, I know you're worried about your eyesight, but your heart function is very important and that's our priority, you know? So, and people might go, oh, I can't improve my eyesight or something, but they don't realize how intelligent the body is and maybe it's a good thing it's not focusing on your eyes or whatever, for example, right? Yeah, and the wisdom of the body, uh, to give another example, if a person is becoming critically deficient in magnesium, mm -hmm. uh, most of the time, uh, the person will experience muscle cramping, say in their calf muscles or other somatic muscles. Giving an early warning, hey, uh, you're becoming magnesium deficient. Yeah. Rather than having that first sign being a cramping of the uh, aorta and the heart muscle. It's a good thing. By the time <laughs> that happens, most people are done. They're right. Quiet. And that's just the body's wisdom as well, redirecting it 
to a less severe thing. Um, that's a fantastic example. Um, one last thing, just before we go, Rick, I'm just curious um, because you talk a lot about magnesium, the magnesium man. So there's a lot of talk about boron and its use of holding magnesium in the cell. Do you use boron in your practice? Do you use borax or a supplement or you don't use it? Okay. No, we use uh, mainly magnesium products, uh, mainly magnesium malate with B6. Okay. Just that thought I'd ask, um, cause I've been coming across lately using like, um, it's a product available only in Australia. Uh, I think it's called Megor, Megoro or something like that. And it's basically magnesium orotate. And I use it as another way of increasing magnesium, intracellular magnesium. Um, and then there's other products that come out. I think there's one by Designs for Health and it's like Trimag Supreme or something. Uh, and obviously I, I'm not paid by these companies to mention them. I'm just these are things I use um, and Trimeg Supreme is like um, three different types of magnesium. So to mix up the forms um, I think can be helpful as well. Um, you know, yeah, those are things getting I do. magnesium in besides our diet sources and magnesium supplements would be magnesium lotions uh, on the skin and uh, magnesium baths and soaks. But okay. if a person has uh, long hair, and they're doing a magnesium bath, either uh, Epsom salts or other uh, or magnesium chloride. Uh, if they're doing those soaks regularly and getting uh, the magnesium water on their hair, that might contaminate the hair sample on a retest. So, I have found that to be true. Honestly, <laughs> they sit back and, you know, they bring yeah. in the tub and they, they get it in they, And then a lot of people do use the neck hair that right there for the hair sample. Um, little different if you go above the ear, but some people still get it wet or they dunk their head and, you know, it, it is a contaminant as well. Yeah. So, so it's just another complexity that we need to be aware of. Right. Now in regards to the kale sandwich. Uh, one more thing about that, uh, especially when there's a high NADK stress ratio, and they have a low ratio of calcium to magnesium, that's reflecting a magnesium loss under stress. And quite often, that ratio may be associated with a history of abuse where the trauma of abuse got so imprinted into their mind-body neuroendocrine system that they are super reactive to stress and a loss of magnesium. You know, that pattern, um, I learned it as a hill pattern. It looks like a shape of a hill on an ARL chart. Um, every time I see that, I think of you. Oh. I just, I just, cause it, you're always talking magnesium loss, the high NAK ratio for an acute stressor. And I'm like, that's the pattern. Every time I hear Rick talk about magnesium and, <laughs> and that potassium and all that, I'm like that, that's the pattern that I think fits that whole, your whole, you know, what you talk about with magnesium and all that perfectly. Uh, now, um, do you have my graphic that I uh, made up uh, showing magnesium and potassium as being the primary intracellular minerals, but easily losing those into the blood, out the kidneys and urine, 
for excretion, but the hair follicle picks them up. I've seen your little drawing. I don't have it on like a document or anything, but okay. if you're after this call, if you want to send me stuff and I'll put it in the notes of the show and then I'll um, also, you know, put yeah. your copper toxicity link and then your link to your book and stuff. Do you have a, a, a Zoom call coming up? Is that right? Or am I mixing something up? Uh, yeah, we're going to do uh, another one on stress. Okay. There's uh, millions of people who have been subjected to an incredible amount of stress with yeah. this whole COVID narrative. Of course. Yeah. So using HTMA concepts, you can bet more people became magnesium deficient, losing magnesium, but also losing zinc. Absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, we use zinc to retain potassium on the level on the hair test to raise potassium. And it's one of the big uses for it. <laughs> it's that iodine and yeah. vitamin A, if you're into that, are like the the stars. So, um, yeah. So if you want to share that information as well, um, you can send I'll, it to I'll me. send you out the, uh, uh, the symptom checklist and also that graphic. All right. You're a superstar, Rick. Really appreciate your work. Um, I consider you one of the pioneers along with Eck and Watts. So um, keep doing well, what I'm you glad do. I'm to be able to give back over these past 40 odd years. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, uh, hopefully we can have you on again. Maybe we'll talk about some new topics. And uh, thanks for joining us in the Mineral Minded podcast. Okay. It's been a pleasure.